Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Roses and Rhetoric. As always, I'm your host. With me is my charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. Very good. Episode number 15. Uh, definitely excited to be back. Love between the two hosts. Um, I do want to give one more shout out to Phil, author again of uh, False Flags, and then also author of Mariner and the Monk. If you haven't checked out that book yet, please do. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, I believe there's an ebook version. Obviously, there's a, a physical copy version of it as well. Um, we'll put links in the description below for, for both books. Um, and kind of on that note, if anybody uh, is uh, an author or a writer who would like to discuss not only their work, but also their, their craft and approach to writing, be sure to reach out to us on social media. Our Twitter handle at roses underscore rhetoric. And then also our website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. But Joe, I had a really good time with Phil last week, and I wanted to kind of get some closing thoughts from you on that interview last week and how you thought it went and kind of some overall thoughts on, uh, on Phil and the, and the books. Sure. Uh, first, I'd like to address that I am today broadcasting from a special location here at the Mile High City. That's right, Denver, Colorado. Um, I know that there's been a lot of different backgrounds in these podcasts recently, so we're just going to keep that trend going. Where in the um, world is Joseph Stanford? That's what be followed sure. by another another segment of Joe's inbox. But we'll oh yes, oh yes, well. we, which we will visit later today. Believe me. <laughs> We will continue that segment. Um, speaking of Phil, yeah, Phil was an awesome guest. I thought he did a great job. Um, he's got those two books, like you mentioned. Um, we read False Flags, and I enjoy. I look forward to reading his other book as well. Yeah, I think uh, I was noticing on the YouTube video, you had a funny comment that he's the kind of person <laughs> you can use big words without sounding pretentious and you know we were both talking so obviously that was kind of the you know that interview was for two hours for us that was I think our longest uh, interview certainly oh, yeah. on this podcast probably one of our longer conversations with anybody in general uh, that we hadn't really known that well and we were we were both um, happy and kind of surprised at how uh, easy that whole conversation went I mean two hours that, w that went by quickly and uh, was, was very seamless. And I think that just speaks to, um, you know, kind of the, the mind of Phil that he was able to field our questions and talk about his works and, you know, really just be a great part of the conversation. So it was a, a tremendous interview and uh, hopefully our interviews in the future continue um, raising the bar as, as that one certainly did. Uh, so again, for anybody listening, for anybody watching, go buy a copy of False Flags, go buy a copy of Mariner and the Monk. Um, and uh, hopefully maybe sometime in the, in the future, we'll get Phil back on and talk about other, other books that he's either writing or maybe get him on just to do a full episode on The Manor and the Month. You know, that one was that, that non-fictional look at the, uh, the war, uh, war hero turned, uh, turned monk. Definitely a great story and something that we want to uh, visit for, for sure and hopefully get Phil on, on here again to talk about that work. But with that, as all good things, that segment must come to an end and we will not be moving on to other things. So we didn't do our own, our, our usual kind of back and forth uh, last week, Joe, because we had uh, Phil on. Um, I wanted to, of course, as always, give you the chance to open up with kind of your, your, your thoughts on the last two weeks, give the audience a, a catch up on things that have been going on in your life. You pointed out the new background, Mile High City in Denver, beautiful place, I'm sure. Um, what's, what is going on in the world of Joseph Stanford? What is going on in the world of me? That's an interesting question. Um, and always has a transient answer. There's always different things happening. Um, recently, 
I did make a purchase that I've been holding off on making for a long time, and I'm very happy that I made it. So as you know, I'm active. I like to lift weights. I like to exercise and whatnot. And one of the biggest problems with that is the muscle fatigue and pains and aches that come along with it. Like on your, it's hard on your joints. It's, and then whenever you're sore, it just makes your whole life miserable. Like the next few days are just, it's hard to concentrate. It's hard to focus on what you're doing. So I bought a massage gun and it's awesome. I've only had it for a few days now, but I've been pain-free since the day I bought it. Have you ever used one of those? So what do you say massage gun? I'm, I guess I'm imagining yeah. two things. I'm, I'm thinking of one, the, uh, it, where it's like, I've, I've seen them before on, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of ASMR, probably the dumbest thing that I'm a fan of it. Uh, so I see it like a bunch of videos. Yeah, what is, what is ASMR? <laughs> Let's not talk about that right now. <laughs> back next week, we'll talk about Jimmy's inbox and we'll go down a rabbit hole. Um, but I, I see like those guns were like, they'll shoot someone in the neck. Is that what a massage gun is? Or is it, I mean, I, I guess I'm not, I'm not even really sure what the, what this product is. Yeah. It's a, it's a device about yay big and it has a it's shaped like a gun and it has a pulsating end to it. Uh, yes, and then okay, what it does that. is it just pulsates at different revolutions or different speeds, yep. frequencies. And it, yeah, it's like an intense like massage. Cause I've used like those thermocanes and like all those other, like, Oh yeah. Just use a lacrosse ball against the wall. It's like, no, that, that doesn't do anything. No. Or like it. those chairs that have those balls in them. That is just the most uncomfortable sensation I've ever experienced. Oh, yeah. I mean, what is that? That is horrible. I love it when you just get that one ball that just rides right up the spinal column, like right on the vertebrae to vertebrae and just bounces. Yeah. As it goes. That's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Somebody made a fortune off the world's worst invention. Whoever made that piece of garbage. So, but I didn't know what you're talking about. So it's, it's the, this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So to, so to speak. Uh, well, good. So you're, so the muscle fatigue is uh, well, well, well controlled by, by this device. And uh, yeah. yeah, good. And even, even better, another benefit of it is I've always heard the question asked by certain people. If you, and the question is, if you could purchase, if you could recommend one item that costs a hundred dollars or less, to someone, what would it be? And then I never, I've never had a good answer to it because I've never like really, I don't know, really loved an item that much to recommend it. But now that I've had this massage gun, I've only had it for a few days, but uh, it's looking like it's going to be a top contender for that recommendation. There you go. Well, good. We're glad that you're feeling better and uh, at a hundred percent. So uh, tell us, I mean, I, we know that you've had your complaints about Portland as of late, but so compare yep. that scenery to the scenery in, in Denver, a, a town that I have only ever heard good things about for anybody listening from Denver. I've only ever heard good things about your town. Mile high city. Uh, yeah. It's very different than Portland at this time, especially Portland. This is like the worst time to be in Portland right now. Cause it's nothing but clouds and rain and everything shut down outdoor dining only. Um, uh, Denver is very similar to Portland in the sense that everyone's, there's like a lot of yuppies, a lot of people with beanies and like down coats and everything, but there's sun. So there's sun coming down and it's more of a desert. So it's not raining. So they're you get not, the vitamin, just depressed from the cloud cover. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you got the vitamin D aspect of it. Yeah. Um, you've got the indoor dining aspect of it. And yeah, I've only been here for like a little over a day. So I'm still exploring the city, but uh, yeah, it's a cool town. I not, not, not a lot of bad things to say about it quite yet. Um, I'm not sure if it's as 
open as somewhere like Houston might be right now, um, just by the fact that Texas is Texas. And, and I think right. things are a little bit more open there. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that as you were talking and my, my wife and I just are, ourselves are keeping things pretty much locked down. So I couldn't even tell you a guess of how locked down things are because we just don't, like I, we, we still do takeout. We don't really do anything else besides that. So I couldn't even give you an answer to how open Texas is. And uh, I, I don't really follow the local news here. So I, I couldn't even tell you, but uh, I guess that would, that would be, would be my, my guess as well. Um, I, I Colorado to me is what it seems like one of those states where it's a state that a lot of people fantasize about living in. At least I, that was kind of my experience as I kind of grown up as people have always been like, you know, one day I want to live in Colorado. It seems like a, a frequent place for people to kind of imagine themselves living in. And uh, I guess you're, you're talking about seeing a lot of young people there. It seems like maybe, you know, that reality has, has come true for, for some people as a, maybe they've gotten older and have, have moved out there or something. Yeah. I, I think that having a lot of these big businesses in the downtown area really helps bring in the, the new people, the people fresh out of college, because it gives them a workable salary that they can use to live in the city, in the high dense population areas. And yeah, I've seen, that's, I've seen that in Portland and, and Denver. Um, Tucson, no, not so much so, I think, as you know. Yeah. But I know there's a lot of business in Houston as well. Yeah, that's uh, Tucson is a special place. Um, my, my sense is that people who live in Tucson, who then move out, eventually try to move back, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's not as easy as one might hope just because of what you're talking about. But I mean, it's, it's the, this is the uh, struggle, right? The more that you conform to creating opportunity, the, the potential you run for losing the character of what makes the town special in the first place. And so there's this infinite struggle of, you know, I'm trying to think of what this saying in Tucson is like to keep Tucson weird. And then also to make it a place where young people want to stay as they get older. So that's a, that's one for the city planners, I guess, to figure out. I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. Yeah. And it does create that unique situation of gentrification, which is something that a lot of people like to talk out against. But uh, I mean, if you want, like, if you want money to come to your city and you want to have a big city and you want to have a big population, like it seems like that's just part of human nature to, to increase the property values within that area. So yeah. I, I'm not sure what the answer is for that. <laughs> I, I don't know either. I think if we did, we would probably uh, might, might have a few more viewers on our podcast. If we, <laughs> if we had the answer to a question like that. Um, so let me, let me change gears a little bit and um, bring up a topic that I know that you will enjoy talking about. So, as we've said on the podcast many times, we are we are big big fans of uh, of Robert Cialdini. Uh, we have talked about his book Persuasion many many times. Maybe about a month ago, maybe a little closer to Christmas, or maybe a little bit after, I finally got a copy of what I think his first book is, which is Influence by nice. Robert Cialdini. Um, I have to say, I think I might like this book more than Persuasion. Actually, um, I just I find it a little more um, whether he talks about the different psychological principles at work um, and at least as, as I'm thinking through it right now, it just seems like he, the, the consequences that he describes in this book to me seem to be a little more, a little more uh, interesting than the persuasion consequences. And I wanted to talk about one today, which is the concept of 
let me see. I wrote it down here. Reciprocity. Reciprocity. Mm. So, yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to define, I haven't finished the book yet. I'm almost done. I'm, I'm about three or four done with it, but let me kind of outline what I am kind of remembering as reciprocity being, and then you know, kind of get your, your, your take on it. But essentially the idea with reciprocity is that people don't like to feel indebted to other people. And as a result, when you receive a gift from somebody, you feel a need to pay them back. And somebody who's trying to get you to do something for them can use this to their advantage by giving you a gift, even without you really wanting them to give you a gift, but you will still feel a debt towards that person. And the example that they give, and there are several in the book. It was the, 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 the Hare Krishnas, right? The Hare Krishnas, exactly yeah. right. So the Hare Krishna strategy was, was, was basically very genius. It was, let me accost this stranger at an airport with a flower wreath that he, a wreath that he doesn't want, put it around his neck. Now that person has a gift for me and they're going to feel a need to pay it back, whether maybe by taking time to talk to them about their religion or just to give them money. And the best part is that, and he talks about this in the book, is that he's seen in these areas where the Hare Krishnas are out recruiting or trying to get money from people that they'll put a, they'll, they'll put a necklace around someone's neck. The person will then pay them money and then they'll throw away the necklace and then the Hare Krishnas go to the trash can, take it out of the trash can and reuse it. I mean, it's a perfect business. And so anyways, I was thinking about that a lot today because it's so simple. And it seems like one of these, and in fact, many of the examples of, of, you know, I think he has six or something like that, six principles that people can yeah. use to influence your behavior. None of them really cost any money to do to somebody. You know, it doesn't really take much money to give someone a gift. I mean, it can be very simple, uh, a, a, a necklace of flowers. You know, he had examples of like a mail-in system where they would mail, you know, it, it was a letter asking for someone to donate money. But in the, in the envelope, it would include a little trinket. And so now you have this trinket and I was like, oh, now I have to give this person something. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it, it's, it's crazy how, you know, what, what essentially is just your, your brain being hijacked by behavior that you aren't in control of, how that can be triggered. And in fact, the whole book influence is about those triggering processes. And so reciprocity mm-hmm. is just one of those. So there, there are, I've, I think I've, I've gone through maybe three or four so far in the book. But that one I was thinking, was was really something because and i don't remember the exact uh example he gives but there it it seems very possible that you could find yourself influencing somebody without even meaning to to be using these mechanisms Hmm. Uh, you know for example you might do somebody a favor without thinking that you're doing it to get them to to do something for you but because of this reciprocity mechanism at work you're you're influencing their behavior even if you don't want to. Now, mm-hmm. I, I know that you've read this book I, well, long before I have. And uh, in fact, I mean, you were on to the persuasion game much, much before I was. But, you know, what, what were your thoughts of influence? And, you know, what were some of the parts of the book that, that still stick with you today and that you still find important? Influence was the first book that I picked up about uh, persuasion, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago. It was, it was kind of my starting point. Um, and it was, it was a, a pro- arguably one of the best books to start with because it, like you said, it breaks up six of the most powerful persuasion techniques into six parts of the book. And I mean, reciprocity is arguably the most powerful one from that book. Um, I'm trying to remember what some of the other ones were. Social proof is another good one too. 
Yeah, no, social proof is huge. Absolutely huge. And it, I, I remember reading it and being like, okay, so the persuasion is this big, ambiguous, like cloud of ideas and of tactics. How is it possible that there's, it can be just broken up into six individual um, subsections? And I was a little hesitant to believe that at first, but after the time uh, and really diving deep into each one of them, I realized that they're all 100% legit and for real. And it amazes me that this is, there's only like one or two books about persuasion out there. Um, that amazes me considering the fact that persuasion accounts for, I don't know, 99% of the way the world works, you know? So that was an eye-opening book. And then he also has his second book, uh, Persuasion, which is also good. Um, I think it's more of just an extension of that book, just saying that you can prime people to be persuaded. So start putting in the work beforehand um, as opposed to the actual influence techniques. But yeah, that book is, was awesome. I'm upset because I get lent it away to somebody more gave it away. So I, that might be a book that I need to repurchase. <laughs> I was, yeah, I, so, and I guess I'm not, I'm not even sure when the new version came out, uh, but I, this is the revised edition. And the, the neat thing about the revised edition is that each chapter ends with him including a letter that was sent to him by somebody who had read this book and saw one of these tactics at works, usually involving the author of the letter. Like either they were the victim or they were the user of the tactic that was used against them. I know we, we've talked about this idea a lot on, on, this, on this podcast. I think it's one that I wanna continue saying is that if you have zero interest in using any of these tactics, God bless you, I perfect, that's perfect. You still have to know them. Why? They're being used against you all the time. And the best part is that neither the person using the technique nor the person being influenced by the technique has to have any idea what they're doing, the technique to be super, super effective. It just, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. It's all subconscious. It's all happening behind the scenes. You can be influencing somebody without even wanting to be doing it. And, uh, And of course, the reciprocal of that is that somebody can be influencing you. And this is, this is the case normally. And you'll have no idea that they're using these tactics on you. What is, what is shocking and what is a big part of, of this book, of course, is that Cialdini, part of his research was actually going to different marketing training facilities where people are being taught these techniques to see how they're being taught by the masters, you know, by the, by the car salesman, by, just really by anybody in sales are using these techniques. It's, it, these are known to people in that industry because that this is, of course, how they get us to buy things that we normally don't want to buy. And I, I like the example that he has of liking this, this, this idea that if you get someone to like you, then you can be more influential with that person and how they can build teams off of this. And essentially, you know, if, you've ever, if you've ever been in an experience where you're buying a, a car or something, when the salesman tells you like, well, let me go talk to my boss. He's not going to be happy with me, but you know, I'm going to do my best. You know, that's them trying to get you to see them as being on your team. They're not mm-hmm. on your team. They're trying to sell you. A no, they're, 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 they're not on your team. Um, and and, and there, there, there's a whole number of things like that as well. I mean, another, another one that gets talked about quite a bit is this idea of anchoring. That if you say a big number, then it kind of puts big numbers in your head. Same thing with small numbers. I mean, all these things can be used, especially when, when making a purchase or something. But what, what strikes me about this is that these tactics are being 
you know, they're all over the world being used by people and influencing people, but we don't really talk about them. I mean, it's, and I think that that's a bad thing. I think that we should be making more people aware of the tactics that are being used against us in order to get us to, to influence our behavior. I mean, this is just, we are so, so uh, flooded with marketing all the time. I mean, oh, yeah. I listen to Pandora while I'm working and every, what, few minutes there's an advertisement for something. I mean, if you're driving on the street, how many billboards do you see if you're watching? I mean, luckily I, I watch Netflix, HBO, but even, even still, you know, those layouts are designed to advertise to you other things that you're not even watching, but like the layout, the screen's trying to get you to watch more things. Um, obviously YouTube has ads all the time. Like we are just so flooded by advertising that to not be aware of all the different things that are being done to, to uh, influence your behavior, you would be putting yourself at a disadvantage, I think, uh, given the world that we currently live in. That is a giant mystery to me. If what I said earlier, that the world operates 98% off of persuasion, why are we not teaching people that about it in schools? Why are we not educating people about it, especially in the capitalistic environment we live in, like you said, where you can't drive down the street without seeing ads? Because um, otherwise, you're just going to fall victim to these car salesmen and those types of people. Did you ever uh, take psychology in uh, high school? I don't know if you ever... Not in high school. I took a college course in it, but I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> so I, I, I remember taking a, a high school psychology class. Like I, I couldn't tell you one thing I learned in that. I, I, I don't remember it. I mean, if they were talking about persuasion, then like that, then that would be my fault, but I doubt it. They were probably talking about something else. Oh, no. <laughs> they talk about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I, I would, it would be great if we were giving uh, young people the, the tools to um, defend their minds. I mean, that's basically how I, how I see it. And, you know, there, for people who are thinking, well, maybe the only consequence of this is, you buy something you don't want to buy or something like that. Well, first off, that would be bad because that is a huge problem mm -hmm. in our country, right? Like that would be a big deal. But the second thing is that this has an effect on people's behavior in realms that are far removed from purchasing. And the example that he gives for social proof is an example that I think our listeners will be, will be familiar with. It's where the, the, the cliche, don't drink the Kool-Aid comes from, which is the Jim Jones massacre in Guyana, which was made... I don't want to say made possible, but certainly uh, exacerbated by the human phenomena of social proof, which is the phenomena where we look to people around us to determine what behavior is acceptable and good for us. And so when you're in a strange land and everybody looks different than you and everybody's speaking a different language, you're going to focus in on people who are similar to you. Well, in Jonestown, that would have been the other cult members. And so that's probably not a good thing for the cult members to be determining your normal behavior. And so that, that led, or like I said, at least exacerbated the number of people who ended up poisoning themselves uh, in, in that environment because they were looking to their peers who they thought were like them and therefore were judges of good behavior. They were not. Uh, it doesn't matter. Your brain can't tell the difference. That's social proof. I mean, that is damaging to keep, I mean, that kill people die because of that. But that kind of phenomena is all around us. And I think people already know about all the obvious examples happening in current, you know, days, you know, current US politics, but this isn't a new behavior. This is a problem that has always existed. And yet 
we never talk about it at the level of influence, at the level of persuasion, of understanding what is the mechanism at work. You know, the mechanism at work is social proof or reciprocity or liking or whatever other, you know, thing is at work here. We should be studying these things so that we can, un- and, and I will say this too, another great part about this book is that he tells people the techniques to unhypnotize yourself from these influencing pressures. You know, he calls it how to say no, how to reject these things, how to spot them before they're happening. And these are lessons you can learn and that you can teach yourself to, you know, not be immune, but to at least give you some defense over these influence tactics that are being used against you all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, social proof is a big one, like you mentioned. And I want to relate that back to like social media, for example. Like how much more credible does someone sound if they have a blue check next to their name? Or a million or followers. A million followers, or even both. a couple thousand followers, right? Yeah. Speaking of which, be sure to follow us on Twitter uh, at Rose underscore rhetoric. But yeah, anyways, go ahead. Uh, get, gain us some credibility, please. Uh, yeah, so you see a lot of people out there and you see people criticizing people for trying to get more followers and trying to get more uh, clout on social media or whatever. But I think that it's important to distinguish between the person that is just trying to gain all those followers and social proof as a means of uh, self-validation or, you know, correcting their own esteem. There's one type of person that does that. That's for sure. Uh, A lot of these influencers But then there's another group of people that just want the influence to be able to push their ideas out there or their agenda or their whatever they want. And I find it harder to find fault with the second group of people because then they're just doing it as like pure business at that point. It has nothing to do with validating themselves or anything like that. But yeah, if you get a blue check next to your name on Twitter or Instagram, that's like it separates you from 99% of the rest of people out there. Yeah, I think the uh, in in the uh, future currency will be blue checks on Twitter and of course Reddit gold. I think those will be the the two currencies that hold the most value as we progress to a more of a digital world. Um, I think I think you know the obvious connection with social media, like you're saying, is the social proof. But I think it also would be interesting to talk about the way that reciprocity can influence people's behavior on social media. So, for example. If somebody were to like one of your tweets, like one of your posts, retweet one of your posts, you know, there would be a subtle obligation you might feel to follow that person back, to like one of their things, to retweet one of these things. I mean, there's all of these pushes and pulls on us as people. And, you know, obviously nobody would expect that we would find ourselves perfectly immune to every step of the influence along the way. That would be a very tall order. Nobody will ever achieve that. But... I, I just think it's so important that we understand the psychological framework that we evaluate and that what we use to determine reality in a sense. And what is important to remember is that these psychological influences that are shaping our perception of what is real and what is false are not based off of a reasoned objective measure of the world. They are heavily influenced by these psychological pressures that are pulling and pulling us towards behaviors that in, in the past were beneficial to our survival. I mean, all of these things we do out of, out of, out of, out of habit or out of behavior mm-hmm. of our brains because they benefited us as a species. And so in, in some sense, you wouldn't want to completely eliminate influence and to completely eliminate persuasion. 
it has useful properties. Otherwise, it wouldn't be with us. But it's important to know how even good systems and, and good, you know, a thing that works really well 99% of the time can still be a fatal flaw if that 1% of the time leads to a dramatic and terrible consequence. And so that is why we need to have our barriers up. It is not to say that these things are never beneficial. They perhaps mostly are beneficial, but they can still be used against us. And for that reason alone, it, they deserve as lay people, you know, as you know, people who are out in that world, we owe it to ourselves to be aware of how these things can be used against us. Yeah, absolutely. And you see something like influence and persuasion, especially prominent in politics, right? And I think it puts you at an extreme advantage just from a mental health perspective to understand what factors are influencing your, your politics, what you believe, who you support, who you like. And I mean, that's a, that's a big deal. I, this is, I, I think persuasion has got to be the biggest secret to mankind. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's not really, really it, well, and that very few people talk about. And the other benefit of of, rest of, of of understanding influence as well is that not only will it allow you to understand your own behavior, but it will also allow you to understand someone else's behavior. And all of a sudden, you can begin to subtract out, you know, not always. Again, we always have the caveat, the obvious exceptions, you know, are, are not what we're talking about. But, you know, yeah. in, in general, if somebody reaches an opinion different than yours, it's maybe not because they're this horrible, evil person, but maybe because they were exposed to different influences than you were exposed to. And in the same way that you weren't in control of every decision and opinion that you had, they probably aren't either. And um, it's, I think that, that that is an important message for us to keep in our heads that we are all, you know, I, I, victim is maybe a strong word, but maybe only a slightly, but I mean, we, we really are all of us as a, as a country, as a population, on the receiving end of decades and decades of research meant to get us to feel a certain way. And so when you see someone who feels different than you do, just remember the mountain of power that was behind the information that was bombarding that person to get them to think what they think. And the same thing is true for you, of course, as well, on the other end, that you were also on the receiving end of you know, this information machine that is trying to get you to believe certain things or to not believe certain things, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I think reading books like this sheds a light on, you know, how can people who are at any genetic level or even at most social levels fairly similar, how do they come out on different ends of the political spectrum? Because they were exposed to different information, <laughs> because they yeah. were exposed to different to different ideas. They were exposed to different things that they, that they found persuasive for as bad a reason as the things that you found persuasive. Um, that's, that's what I think. <laughs> and yeah. again, obviously there are exceptions to that, but I, I think in general, it's, you know, I, in my family, I, I can think of, you know, how people in my family, so by definition have similar genetics, by definition have similar social upbringings, and that we have totally different ideas about any number of things. Yeah. Now, I would think a major part of that is this bullshit right here. <laughs> I mean, right? It's not gonna be a part of it. And so, you know, why, why would I, you know, value them less because of that? If anything, I should look to see where the common ground is and work from there. Yeah, absolutely. And just to, to close out on influence, um, I would highly recommend that all our listeners go and read it or get the audio version and listen to it. 
And I would say that anyone that wants to live life on their own terms and not just live life simply according to the persuasion that everyone else imposes on you, which is what 98% of people do. Uh, yeah, definitely go get that book and definitely read it and um, start, start practicing uh, pointing out and observing these, these, these persuasion tactics in the wild, in, in the real world. Learning, learning how to say no. Like that's, if, if I could have offered Cialdini a byline for this book, you know, the byline here is the psychology of persuasion. I would have said a better byline would have been how to say no. Because I mean, that really is what this book is about. How, how do you detect when a tactic is being used on you? And how do you tell yourself no? And, and, and let me again say one more time, the person using these tactics on you does not have to be doing them on purpose. They may really be thinking to themselves, I'm, I'm not trying to do anything. I'm trying to give this person the information they need to make a decision. I will, I'll stress this again. Neither party has to be aware of the influence technique at work for it to be effective. Yep. And, and some people just randomly do it on their own. They perfectly execute these techniques on their own naturally without any thought or any motivation to do so. Yeah. And it's just those are, those are the interesting ones, the naturals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was not me. <laughs> was, <laughs> uh, all of my charm was hard earned in the, uh, in the foundry of awkward, uh, awkward social experience, but hard, hard learned and failure. Hard <laughs> failures. Uh, yeah, this is, let's close it out. Influence, go check it out, go buy a copy. You know, I, uh, let's, let's just settle this right now. Tell me, give me your honest view. What is your opinion on on, on audiobooks? <laughs> I, I have no experience. I have no experience. I, to me, the rule I made for myself is that I can listen to audiobooks as long as I'm reading books too, at the same time. Because I think it's different. Different kinetics of understanding, different kinetics of comprehension are 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 uh, in play whether you're listening to it or whether you're reading it. So, for me, in attempts to get both edges of that sword. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I, especially I commute to work every day. So that's like 40 minutes every day that, uh, you know, if I put that to use towards audiobook, I can, I can finish a book in like a week or two, especially if you get that like 1.5, 1.75 speed going. Yeah. And I think there's value there. I don't know if the comprehension is the same as when you read it, but I mean, what's better reading a book or reading no book, you know? Sure. For listening I, 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 I like this idea. And I wanted to see, I want to see it caught on, or I want to, I want to see it catch on is this idea that you don't buy a copy of a book, but you buy access to the book. And so if you buy a book, it should come with the audio version, a hard copy version and a digital version. I do know a, a book company that does the, the, the second half of that, where if you buy a physical copy of the book, you get access to an online ebook of it as well. And, um, to me, that's just genius. I like that approach a lot. And I remember something similar happening back in the day of uh, DVDs and Blu-ray is that when you would buy a Blu-ray disc, it would come with a digital copy of it as well. You could download and have a digital copy of it as well. And I really like that model because um, that would be a really good way, you know, especially if you buy a book like, like Influence or if you buy like a textbook or something that has a bunch of footnotes in it and a bunch of problems, undoubtedly there's gonna be mistakes in those books. So if you have access to an online version of the book, then when they push out the updates and the corrections, it's just, it's, it's all on the e-version. You can just see like, oh, on this page, that should be, you know, something else. And then you copy it or something And you're, if you wanted to copy it, 
write in your, write in your hard book. I have a hard time myself writing a book, but that, that's a different problem. <laughs> um, but I do like that model of, uh, of, of owning the, like basically you view it as owning content rather than like owning a copy, you own content and uh, having access to those different mediums seems like a nice way to um, give your person, your, your audience, you know, all the different mechanisms of being able to enjoy whatever it is that you're putting out into the world. Yeah. I'm sure there are certain books that I bought in, you know, physical copies, audiobooks, and eBooks. I'm, I'm sure that's happened a few times before. Yeah. I, I, I actually was almost buying. So I, a, a similar, you know, kind of not ebook, but well, no, I guess it would be an ebook. I, for my Kindle, I got a copy of the book on my Kindle. And I, as soon as I bought it, I thought, you know, I'm going to regret not having a hard copy. And like just this week, I had a copy in my Amazon out, like checkout thing. I was like, uh, I, I, I couldn't, I was like, I've already bought it. I can't, I'm not going to buy another copy of it. But I know it's not a great I, feeling, but I might, I might. Um, yeah, no, that was good. I really enjoyed, I really, I'm, I'm enjoying influence. But I, when I finish, we can talk more about, you know, all the different mechanisms, but I just wanted to get that out to our audience. Uh, Go go buy a copy, and it'll definitely you know it, it's a it, it's 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 a filter, right? I mean that's what the frame is. It's a filter. You understand things through certain filters, and this is a filter that people should have at their disposal. You know sometimes you need the math filter for life, or you need the physics filter for life. You definitely need to have the persuasion filter to understand uh, things that are going out around you. Um, that's a really good book. I'm really enjoying it quite a bit. Have a bunch of go ahead are we ready for joe's inbox now yeah let's move over to joe's inbox so uh okay. yes well let me let me introduce it a little bit you know please contagious contagious like chicken pox another episode of joe's inbox <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, was, that was incredible okay thanks so this is the segment where i share some personal <laughs> messages or anything personal for my own life really yeah. that i find of interest this is us filling filling time on the two hours that we <laughs> and for this example i might try to actually crowdsource some feedback from the audience so. good well if, if we've shown anything on this episode is that always trust the wisdom of crowds <laughs> yeah totally um so without further ado i will read to you yes uh, the latest message. Good. Okay. Good. This message uh, is from an application. It's a message from an application. The application is the Hinge app. Now, for those of you that don't know what Hinge is, um, it's basically a less trashy version of Tinder. It's a, it's a dating app out there. Uh, with that being said, here's the message. Here we go. Here, Joseph. <laughs> Your account has been removed. You have been banned from using Hinge for violating our terms of service. If you subscribe to a preferred membership, you can cancel your subscription here. I didn't. If you would like to appeal your account ban, please submit your request here. So it things like this bother me, not because like I actually care about the product or service, but- The service. <laughs> <laughs> How was the customer service on Hinjuk? <laughs> well, we'll find out. And <laughs> it, it's more of like a reciprocity type thing where I want to just like get back at like, I just, I want to reinstate my account just so that I can be right, I guess. Right, I don't sure. really know what the real reason is, but 
Uh, so I, I wrote a response. Um, actually, I have it here. And I want to read the response I wrote, and I want to get your feedback on it, and uh, potentially some of our listeners' feedback on it. <laughs> I want you to tell me what my chances are of getting my account back. And I'll just say one more time, people, follow us on social media, at Rose underscore Rhetoric. <laughs> you can also follow Joe, at Jose, four underscores, Cuervo. Jose, four underscores, Cuervo. All right, Joe, let's hear your response to the Hinge app appeal. <clears throat> okay. I call it The Appeal. It's the title the, of this. Of course. Hello. I hope this finds you well. The intent of this message is to express why I believe my account was suspended in error, as well as why I believe it should be reinstated. COVID has presented challenging times for all of us. We've all been coerced to abandon our old ways we used to live life and adopt new ways. Dating is no exception to that, and like learning any new skill, the process is iterative and at times cumbersome. As someone who's exclusively practiced dating through in-person interactions at bars, clubs, or elsewhere throughout the day, lockdowns and social distancing has forced me to begin the arduous process of evolving a new skill set and refining new codes of etiquette to meet the demands of the virtual world. As I have recently learned, in-person interactions with potential partners are much different than virtual interactions. When interacting in person, so much more is communicated through nonverbal means. For example, teasing is much more permissible in person when accompanied by non-threatening body language or a smile revealing your genuine intentions. In online dating, these tools of comfort are not always available. Although I'm not certain on what my exact infraction was, I'm confident that the exercise of going through this appeal process has recalibrated my virtual etiquette, and I look forward to the future challenges and learnings that accompany online dating. I apologize for any disrespect or misconduct that was interpreted from my message and vow to err on the side of comfort and respect moving forward. Thank you, Joseph Stanford. <laughs> what do you think? You think I got a shot? Do you? <laughs> it, depends on, it depends on what the infraction was. Do you not have any idea what you did? I have no idea. I have no how idea. Does, how does Hinge work? Do you have like a profile on there? Uh, I mean, yes. is it like Tinder where you have it's like a picture and like some stupid thing about yourself or something? So for Tinder, the big difference between Hinge and Tinder is that on Tinder, you both have to swipe right and then you can start a conversation between the two people. Uh, so you, in order to increase your odds, it's all about just like having the best profile and like looking as physically attractive as you can, having all the social proof, et cetera. With Hinge, it's a little bit different because you can actually message people before you match. Mm. So that opens it up to, I don't know, if you're good at conversation, I guess it makes the app a little bit easier, more favorable to you. Um, so yeah, you, you, you're given a series of profiles and then you can message, you can comment and they like, they like force you to make your profile so that you have interesting things to talk about. Like they have like pre-made questions that you can answer and just like a whole bunch of really dumb stuff. But uh, it's, it's more just intended to get the conversations going and talking. And <laughs> I don't know exactly what I did. I can't think of anything for, for certain, but uh, you know, when, the age of political correctness and in Portland, I'm sure that it doesn't take much to get reported. 
I want a version of one of these apps where you have to swipe right, A had to swipe right, and then a third party has to also swipe right to just kind of give it the okay of like, yeah, okay, that might work. Or no, <laughs> no. I want nice a try. third party. Yeah, I want the, uh, the I want like the uh, the the mother or father to be like, yeah, no, that's I, I don't think so. That's what I want for these. I think that would solve a lot of these problems. Um, is it all over? T- I'm imagining it's all text. There's no like, it's like you're like you're texting things back and forth or something. I mean, yeah, there's you're messaging talking about teasing. Is it just the world's worst market for like awful text jokes or something? A lot of uh, oh yeah, it's yeah. 90 percent of the messages you see out there are just like super cliche, super dumb. Mm. Like, yeah, and and that's like the line you got to walk because if you choose to be go down that path of like hi how are you or hi you're cute or hi how was your day you know shit like that yeah like that's just boring it's not gonna it's not gonna be very fruitful right but then you try to make it more interesting and there's a yeah a fast approaching cliff of you know maybe someone's gonna get offended by saying something or you know maybe across some line you didn't understand was there so it, it's it's tricky it's like uh it's very yeah. tricky and it's a, it's a big exercise in influence. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, what it is, it's, it's, a, it's another check in the pro column of uh, getting married young, which is why I'm glad <laughs> that I did that for myself. Uh, but it is fun to watch people navigate these apps. And uh, I always think like, what would it be like to go back a hundred years or something and like talk to somebody about dating now? Like, well, you have this box and people show up on you. And you try and say something to them that isn't too offensive or they report you and get your account banned, but isn't too boring that they scroll over you and go on to the next person. Yeah, right. That's the line that you're working right now. And yeah, I think I imagine dating was probably a completely different animal. Um, Maybe even just five years ago, especially 10 years ago, especially times before the internet. I guess it's, it's just a constantly evolving process. But as far as my response, what do you think? Do you think I got good chances on this? Do you think I need to shorten it, apologize more? Uh, oh, wait, you haven't sent it yet? No, I haven't sent it yet. Oh. Um, I mean, I, I think it sounded very heartfelt, very sincere, you know, good good structure. I think that the, the read well. Um, I think it ultimately will come down to the nature of the offense. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew it. It's nothing. It can't be anything that bad because like I... I wouldn't right. say anything horrible, but right. No, knowingly, knowingly, you wouldn't yeah. say anything. Yeah. Or sober. <laughs> or so. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I know that maybe that would be the best benefit for these apps that you have to blow into your phone before you can access it. Or it's like, no, you're too drunk for Tinder. That's us. There's nothing but bad news. <laughs> There's a little breathalyzer to get in. Yeah. yeah. That's what I want. Or like a little game where it's like, click the dot if you'd like miss it or something. Cause you're drunk. They just don't let you get on there. Um, yeah, no, that, that really sucks. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. I don't, know. I don't care at all. But no, it's thing gets reinstated or something. Yeah, I mean, if if not, then I just use the next shitty app that's out there. Binge uh, or something like that. Actually, you 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 came up with a dating app concept not too long ago, right? I did. It's uh, it's a, it's kind of an underground one. Um, I'm already talking about it right now, but it, people who are listening just know that it'll it'll, it'll be on the app store soon. And um, I think it's going to really cut to the chase, if, if you will, about some of these online dating apps. It's really going to 
really going to force both parties to kind of show their hands as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe fill, fill some of the holes that other dating apps have yeah. yet, yet to fill. Exactly. Right. Um, and so we'll be talking more about, more about that in, in, in due time, but um, yeah, that was a great segment of Joe's inbox. I'm always glad to know. There you go. <laughs> Hopefully uh, I'll, I'll send this off today and then maybe I'll have a response by next week and we can uh, review it in the next edition. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll be sure to, tag uh the hinge app in our in our <laughs> in this episode and hopefully let's put them on the spot let's, let's put them on uh, the spot so come on yeah. come on we're dating online these days you know we, we you know you gotta have a little flexibility going on here very good very good well i uh I, I i'm sorry that you were that you were banned from that i mean this is your little brush with uh cancel culture i guess oh, this is, I know, right? literally literally you were canceled because of uh this app didn't like your approach to dating, I guess. You know, I think a lot of people are starting to take the getting canceled in the cancel culture is more of a badge of courage or badge of honor than anything. I think it's, a, I think we're starting to make that turn a little bit in society now. Like a while ago, it was just the worst thing that could happen to you, right? Like 2010s or like around that time. And now I think it's starting to get more acceptable. So that's the good news. Yeah, that's the good news. I mean, hopefully they'll, Get you back on there and <laughs> hey maybe you know maybe one of our lucky listeners will come across you on hinge one of these days and <laughs> maybe, maybe uh after talking about reciprocity maybe i need to send them a little something a little gift like a little trinket or something you know yeah, yeah i think that would be something good to add like a digital coupon in your email yeah like send them, or like a little bit of bitcoin maybe or something to send them something that they could like oh thanks this is nice yeah, just like 0. 0.003 bitcoin yeah, there's always a fun between bribery and and, and gift giving <laughs> and reciprocity. Uh, and reciprocity between that and, and bribery. bribery is always. But uh, that's good. That's very good. I'm trying to think, I had some other things written down here, but I didn't want to move on until you you felt good about the about oh, this. I mean, if you feel good, I feel good. Send it off and see what happens. Very good. Well, let's let me. Let me see what we have here. I know, uh, I know you, you possibly have one more written piece, but that we might want to save that for another another outing. But yeah, uh, we'll we'll save that one. Good, 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 good. good. Later. Very good. Well, I wanted to run by you an idea that I had this week that I thought was. I try to, you know, I always try to think, you know, the opposite of uh, kind of mainstream wisdom sometimes, just to play a little game. Mm-hmm. And so I had this idea where I was thinking, you know, we tell young people to not try to be famous. That in, in, in a sense, you know, I remember the, the, the line from Barack Obama was, you know, joking, but he was basically saying, you know, all of our kids aren't going to grow up to be basketball players and rappers. And, uh, and I, me- I remember thinking, you know, what if steering kids away from quick fame and quick money was actually a really bad idea? And my thinking was as follows. When you see a young person trying to make it big on social media or something, what you're basically seeing is a young kid asking themselves the following question. How can I uniquely create large amounts of wealth and be independent? Mm-hmm. That seems like a good question for kids to be asking themselves, I think. It's the best question. Yeah. I can't think of a better one. <laughs> Yeah, me either. And so I, I think from now on, when I see a young kid on social media, I'm going to be thinking, hey, they're just trying to create wealth in a unique way and be independent. And I don't know that I can really find fault in that. Obviously, there are some behaviors I would steer young people away from, but the, mm-hmm. the general impulse, I think, of wanting to 
look for easy money is precisely the mechanism that we should be engaging in. And what that is essentially doing is to borrow from the idea of Peter Thiel, that's people looking for secrets. I mean, that's the source of value is looking for secrets. In fact, the phrase of, you know, nothing good comes easy. The reason that is usually true is because of scarcity. If there's a thing that's really easy to get, then likely a lot of other people will already have it. So you're not really adding anything to the market, but that isn't always true. I mean, there are simple things around us right now, today, that everybody is just missing on and that somebody will stumble upon and discover now, mm-hmm. will not require that they are a genius or a superstar athlete or anything else, but they will just have been somebody who was looking and happened to find it. And so when I look at young people trying to make it big on social media or something, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to stumble across a secret and they're trying to stumble across a way that they as an individual can create something that somebody else finds valuable. And I, I, I would applaud them and their effort. And basically I'm, it's their entrepreneurs. They're looking for those secrets. They're looking for those zero to one moments in order to uh, create wealth and, and drive, uh, drive progress. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more on that. Um, I think that the mainstream is pushing this idea of how everyone needs to go to school, pick like one of these predefined discrete majors. And then, you know, that's your life for the rest of your life. And you're supposed to make that decision when you're 20 years old or 18 years old or whenever you're going to college. And I think that the biggest problem is that our culture is not, and I don't know if any culture does this, it's not pushing people to align their passions with their lifestyles, right? So instead it's pushing people to align their college degrees or their jobs with their lifestyles. So in effect, your job becomes your lifestyle. It it, it determines your schedule. It determines where you live, your vacation schedule. um, It determines how late you stay up at night, right? Like it becomes your lifestyle. And this is just what we're pushing people to do. And a lot of people don't have the motivation to, to fit in this predetermined box and, and still be successful. So you see a lot of people that are just, I think we've talked about this before, they're just disenchanted with their jobs or just not happy in general at their jobs. And I don't think it has to be that way, uh, especially considering that whenever you do align your passion with something, that just means you have unlimited horsepower to work towards it, right? So even if the idea is not that good, um, you're going to have an unlimited horsepower to pursue it and, you know, at least get in the arena of something that interests you. And then like you talked about, maybe discover something entrepreneurial that can make money along the way. And I realize this isn't like something that anyone can do. I mean, it's easier for a young person with no family or no, no uh, obligations to, to do. It's easier for someone to take that risk to go out and pursue their passions. But uh, all in all, I think that we're not only not promoting aligning your lifestyle with your passions, but we're actually uh, discouraging it. Um, you know, you say like, I don't want to go to college and be like, oh, what's wrong with you? It's like, no, nothing's wrong with me. What's wrong with you? Right. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I think one, so, and I, I will confess, I have not read this, but I, I have heard many people talk about it. So I believe it to be true. Um, that essentially, you know, way back when 
and I don't know the, the 30s or the 20s. I don't I don't know when it was when it was written, but um, I want to say it was Keynes, the you know famous economist who has mm-hmm. set the framework for much of modern economic thinking, was thinking back in the day that as future progressed, we would be able to get work down into like a 15-hour work week because of all the improvements and productivity that would accompany progress technologically that we would be able to get done in 15 hours what we were doing previously in, you know, I guess 40 or whatever the work week was back then. And of course, that, that, that is nowhere near the case. People still strive to work full time. We still try to work, strive to work for a certain number of hours a week, or we still work five days a week, whatever it is. And I was thinking, you know, why is that the case? And it's obviously from, for many people, in order to receive the full benefits of employment, including a salary or, you know, if they're working hourly, their hourly check or whatever, you know, they are driven to work for time. You know, we, and they want to count as a full-time employee in order to get things like healthcare, which is obviously an extremely important benefit. You know, I'm not making light of why people do it. I'm not confused. I know why, I know why, and it's a, it's a good reason, but when we're talking about, you know, society and things that we structure in terms of how they influence behavior, there's this idea that I've really been uh, that I've been trying to read more on and that I find very influential is essentially this idea that we are as a society, we are still chasing work rather than value. And we're still struggling or not struggling. We're, we're still working towards employing people rather than just producing material wealth. And this gets back to the idea. I know we talked about this before with Eric Weinstein, the idea that jobs are essentially the mechanism that we use for redistributing wealth in this society. But that drives us as a country, and I think the world largely is in this, I and mean, certainly developed modern economies are like this, mm-hmm. where they strive for high levels of employment. I mean, we always hear about this. Employment's at whatever percentage, and it's either good or bad. It's like, well, that's only true because that's how people make money. That's how people get things from this machine, you know, the, the, this capitalist ma- machinery that is creating wealth. We, re- we receive that wealth by working in it and then taking some out. But what if there was a way, I, I don't have the answer for how this could be accomplished, and I'm sure there's a million problems wrong with this thinking, but my, my thinking more and more is we should be paying people at their jobs to automate them to get rid of that work. We should be looking, for, we should be looking to destroy work because nobody wants to really be working, or at least nobody wants to be doing all of the work that they're doing. Obviously, I would think in, in, in most jobs, there are elements of it that actually are fun and enjoyable and that involve creativity and problem solving. But mm-hmm. let's take something obvious. You know, nobody wants to be um, writing, you know, saying that you're sending an email or something. This is before the days of automated email. Nobody would want to retype the same email 50 times. So we found a way of automating that task, right? Because nobody wanted to be doing that anyways. But we should be taking that mindset further and thinking, well, we should be all striving and creating a way where people are encouraged to destroy their job, to destroy their work without losing any value, finding a way for a machine to do it or for a computer to do it that generates the the same quality and quantity of output, but just without you having to be there. And if we could find a way, I think there are maybe a few models for doing this. One would be employee-owned businesses. Another would just be finding ways of having people own more stock in companies or something along those lines. Another one might be universal basic income. There's many ways it could be accomplished, probably some combination of all three. But if we could find a way of actually encouraging people to actively destroy their job without destroying the value that the job created, then we would, in a, in a sense, be trying to free ourselves from the work, but not from the, from the wealth that the work created. So what would, what would happen to 
to the people that effectively replace themselves out of a job. Like let's say a McDonald's employee comes up with a machine that can just take the orders and make the Big Macs. Yeah. What happens to that employee? What I would hope happens to that employee is that they would find a way of receiving the profit that that machine creates. Okay. So that in, in a sense, even though they're not doing their job, because it was they who automated the job, they still have a, a, a stake or a claim. To some royalties. Place. Yes, exactly. But what, what about not that employee, but the, the other employee? That, that wasn't hired. Yeah, no doubt about it. And so I, I think in that case, you know, the, 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 the envision is either one where there's always enough work to be done at any moment, that there's always a job to be automated. That's one possibility. I don't know if that's true or not. And the other would be that uh, society would find that task of wealth creation and job destruction valuable, that we would make that a part of, you know, our current social safety net and, and expand it to cover those people in the, in the belief essentially that we don't want people to work when a machine can do the job better, or mm-hmm. really I would say just we should be striving to make the machines do the job better uh, towards that framework where people are not working just to work, but are actively looking at they're in a job, they have a job, automate it, get rid of it, onto the next one, or do something else. And I, again, I will fully confess, I do not have all the answers for this. And there is a million questions that would make this a terrible idea, and no doubt about it. But it's intriguing to me because I like the idea of people being encouraged to set themselves free in a sense. And I know there's a ton of bugs to figure out. And I also know that a lot of jobs right now probably can't be automated. And certainly I don't think anybody's job could be automated hundred percent today. I mean, maybe it could, but um, I like the idea of having that, that mindset that we encourage people to do that. But the problem right now is that society wouldn't reward you for doing that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it rewards you for working when really what we want is for society to reward you for creating value. That's what we want. You know, this this gets back to the idea of we're measuring the wrong metric. We're measuring employment when we should be measuring value. We're measuring how many people are working, not what are they making. And um, and I, again, BDP measures the other side of the two, but I'm saying really employment only matters to us because, or maybe not only, but a part of why it matters to us is because that means that those people are being paid for their job and not, you know, on a government benefit are struggling and are homeless. I mean, obviously there's a lot of bad things that can happen. People aren't working, but mm-hmm. I, I, I like the idea of creating, of, of tying people to value creation directly rather than having employment be kind of that middleman in, in, in some sense for that other between the two. Yeah. And so uh, I've got a bunch I'm trying to put together in my head. Uh, what comes to mind first is, is unions. So it seems to me like unions act as like kind of a middle ground in between uh, maybe a government unemployment assistance and just being fully gainfully employed because what the unions do is they make sure that some people are employed that might not otherwise be employed. Right. So it's almost like a, a, a welfare type, um, entity in the sense that it's going to keep more people on the workforce, even though they might not be providing all the work that's needed. Um, Looking back at 
what you were saying about how people are working, they're, they're trading their time for money. And that reminds me of Naval. Naval Ravikant has a, a famous tweet where he says something like trading time for money is always a bad value proposition because you know, time is finite. So how can you put a value on it? And it's much better just to have your ideas or your, something else be able to, to create your wealth. And along those lines and creativity, he says that the only jobs that will be protected from AI or will be protected from automation are the ones that are creative and artistic. And those are the ones that we're like pushing people away from the most in society today. Um, I know I touched on a bunch of points there, but uh, yeah. what, what would you think? Are those in, in line with what you were saying? I, I am very much pro-union myself because I, I do see them as providing a necessary bargaining chip against powerful companies. I mean, I don't think anybody needs a refresher on the immense power that some companies have today. And I think like Hinge, for example, like if you had a union to help represent you in the uh, Hinge environment, you know, yeah. uh, that, that would be something. Um, so I, I, I do want to say that, I mean, I, I do think unions are important for helping employees negotiate uh, powerfully, but I want to, let me, let me go from there to the part about artisticness and creativity. There's one more job category too that I think AI will never be able to do, or at least will be a, have a very hard time doing. And that is discovering things that are fundamentally true. And just to give people an idea about that right now is, and maybe let me say that maybe one day they could, but they would, they would really have to be intelligent, not just replicating intelligence. And there's a difference between, between those two. Mm -hmm. But it's a very simple math proof for someone to show that all the natural numbers never stop. So one, two, three, on and on to infinity. It'd be very, very hard for a computer to actually be able to prove that. It would just be counting numbers and it would never stop. It would never reach infinity. So, so what does it do? It, it, it can't do anything. So a human under, understands that on a kind of an intuitive level. Computers right now don't really have intuition. The other thing is that you know, humans and especially like scientists who are really out discovering new things I think jobs that have novelty in them, and in fact, that would be a part of creativity, right? So it hasn't happened before. Um, so I would say jobs in that category, I, I definitely agree with mm -hmm. Naval, I think are gonna be very safe from AI. Um, and kind of, this is kind of like the joke I was saying just a moment ago, like, you know, when we see young kids that are out trying to make it big on YouTube or something by singing or whatever, I mean, an AI will probably never have as many followers, at least, you know, maybe like a novel Boston Dynamics robot maybe has as much of followers. But like in general, people want to see a human being doing that, not a robot or a, or a computer doing that. Well, and, what, uh, what about the deep fakes that are starting to come up now? Well, true, true. But at least then they, they're, it's a, because it's a fake. In other words, the people watching it still want to be watching a person. But I, I see your point that maybe a computer could just make a bunch of deep fakes. Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. The, the deep fake technology is, uh, terrifying to me so um but but from from that i guess you know back to the main to the main point about trading time for for value from naval i think he's spot on because we have our life and that is really all that we have um and that's i think as fundamental a truth about being a human is that one day you're going to die and the idea that we spend so much time working and I, let me not make light of it. I mean, I am glad that I am working. I'm glad that I have a job. It, it affords me benefits. But I, I'm just saying as, as the next step, if you will, in terms of a social structure, imagine a place where 
you're working, but your job is to get the job to no longer be needed. Like that's what they're paying you to do. Like your value as a human is figuring out how can I combine systems and machines and computers so that no one else has to do this. And I mean, really, I guess, you know, where the, the far out kind of, you know, not even on the political spectrum in the United States, but like the far out political idea with all this is like some kind of anarcho-communist society where the wealth is shared amongst the people. And the whole effort is to create machines that satisfy all of the, the drudgery of life that no one wants to do. And because nobody wants to do it, we have a machine do it for us. And we all kind of just reap the spoils of those machines. I mean, maybe that's the future. I have no idea. I'm, I'm not claiming that that's what I want or that's what I think will happen. But it's an idea that as I, as I read more about, as I think more about, there's a lot to it that I find appealing. And I think the struggle is trying to figure out what aspects of, the, of that hypothetical society could actually be implemented and put into place. And the next question is, what can I do as an individual to make that possible for me or for other people, you know, how do we actually move towards that? And I just, I'm, I, I continue to be inspired by, you know, the ideas of Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, but essentially the idea is that the way that you achieve things that are large life is you, you just start. I mean, you just, you just, mm-hmm. like, how do you go to Mars? You build a rocket. It isn't any more than that. If that's what you do, you build a rocket. It's not, you, you know, you, you build a rocket that goes to Mars. That, that's how you go to Mars. And it's how do we create a society where people are rewarded for automating their jobs? We, we, just, we just do it. I, I don't know how, but we just find a company that's going to say, hey, work for me. I have this job. I want to be automated. I will pay you a percentage of the money after every time this machine works properly. Like that's would be a place to at least start. I, I don't know. But it's um, this uh, far left, you know, which I never would have read, I mean, I don't know, even a handful of years ago, I would never have read. Now I read it more. I'm thinking, you know, there really is something to this stuff. And I think it's worth paying attention to. But I mean, it's not anywhere in the modern political discourse. It's it's too, uh, you know, out of the normal realm of discussion. But I mean, I, I do find it interesting to talk about and to at least create a, a narrative or something that we can understand and that we might find uh, find valuable. I've thought quite a bit about this. Um, I don't have any answers on it, but I have thought a lot about some certain inventions over time, like like the cotton gin, who's at Eli Whitney that invented that. Also, why did they make us learn that? Why is that so important? Anyway, not only did we have to learn it, but it was on an episode. Of, <laughs> it was on an episode of Chalk Zone. Remember that fucking TV show? What was it called? Chalk Zone. Chalk Zone. I never saw. I never got that channel as a kid. Oh. Yeah, no, that was a hell of a channel. Uh, anyways, yeah, Eli Whitney. Of the inventions to know was like that one and uh, right to the, the cell phone. That was it. There was yeah, nothing. And the, the, the printing press. Was the it, printing was the press. Yeah, Gutenberg printing press. That, that was it. Yeah, the Gutenberg press. But <laughs> nothing else. Yeah, you, look at, you look at inventions like that and I wonder, was the net effect of an invention like that, like more people gaining unemployment or less people gaining unemployment and work? And Second part, is there some sort of universal truth that you can pull away from that? Like maybe, maybe it's impossible to take people out of their jobs because when you come up with an invention like the printing press, you now created a whole in branch of new industries like publishing companies. You've enabled a lot more people to be authors that weren't able to be authors before. New genres of books are going to start popping up. Um, 
and then you look at something like the cotton yeah the false flags the uh the the cotton gin and that just improves all the textile industry it, you can make different kinds of textiles now you, everything becomes more affordable uh is there some sort of universal truth in every time you create a product or a invention of efficiency that uh, you're not necessarily going to have more people unemployed afterwards, but maybe even more people employed. Um, perhaps they're more high skilled employees, but is, is it, do you see some sort of universal truth that can be found in there? I mean, certainly I agree with you. It's hard to know in this kind of get into the realm of like Nassim Taleb is like, who can predict the future? Nobody, mm -hmm. that's the answer. So don't even try. And I think, you know, one of the things is, um, you know, I, I think back to, you know, even not even like a tool, but even just like a, like a chemical process, like when people began making high quality steel, all of a sudden, every, like it was just, it, that, that changed the world. And so I don't, I don't know that the goal is to have people not work as much as it is to change the nature of what people are doing mm. so that we're always moving towards a society where the jobs that we have are better aligned with our experience as a human being and that they build on our benefits as a human being. You know, I just remember in zero to one, Peter Till was talking about, you know, the balance between computers and, 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 and humans and this idea that, you know, it, at least currently, you know, computers really are just a tool. And it's a matter of figuring out where you as a human fit in a world where computers exist. Mm -hmm. And in, in each one of these inventions, that's the question. It's, you know, on day, on, on day negative one, there is no cotton gin. Therefore that required, you know, this kind of person to be around. But on day zero, now that the cotton gin exists, the question then is, well, where do you fit in the world now that the cotton gin exists? And so in, in, in a way, when we're, you know, studying or when we're growing up, it's, the question is always, you know, who do I need to be in the future that we're working for? I mean, that's where I have to fit. And that is a question that is, like I said, nobody can know. But I do think that there are things that people do enjoy doing more so than others. I don't really know many people who enjoy, you know, like repetitive, high stress jobs. I think it'd be hard to find someone who really enjoy that. I think people like having yeah. ownership over things. I like people feeling that they're, they're a part of the decisions that are being made and that they're not just, you know, clocking in and clocking out, but people want to feel a part of something. I mean, I think that those are all healthy instincts that we have. We want to really feel like our voice matters. And so if anything, what I would like to see more of is less and less, which is, I would say probably the opposite direction that we're heading in right now, but it would be fewer big companies, more small companies where in, in every small company, a person is really being validated as an individual and they feel legitimately so that their unique contribution really is making a difference. And that, it, and that it isn't just a persuasion game of the boss telling you, oh no, you really matter, but it's actually like you really do. And I think ownership is a big, a big part of that. What I would like to see is as more and more things become automated, more and more people have exposure and access to figuring out ways of using those machines to bring their ideas into reality. That's what I want more and more of more creativity, more expression, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, so I don't normally like to talk about books that I haven't finished yet, but this is just too, uh, too related for me not to. 
So I, we were talking a little bit before the podcast. Uh, I started this book, The Alchemist, and I'm about like quarter, halfway through. But essentially what it's shaping up to be is about a boy that's trying to find his, his calling in life, really, or his like vocation. And it talks about, it calls it finding your personal legend is what it calls it. And that is essentially just pursuing what interests, pursuing your passions, what interests you and just following that vein, that like, that like vein of gold or whatever, until it leads you somewhere that can produce wealth or something. But it, it talks about how whenever you start, and this is kind of like the metaphysical part that uh, isn't really the rational piece of it, but it talks about how when you start pursuing those things that do interest you and, you know, moving towards where you see the energy that the universe actually will kind of help to like kick you up to the next spot. Like if you're not, if you're not progressing far enough, like it'll, it'll kick you with an opportunity out of nowhere. And uh, this book kind of, it's, it's, it's a story it's in story form and it's super short and it's got pictures too, which is like pretty cool. Like I can't remember it always helps when you're uh, burning through a book. It's like, oh, I have to paint as a story or a picture. Perfect. And I just cranking through. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember the last time I read a book with pictures. It's pretty awesome, but it's yeah. it's an easy read. It's probably yeah. a couple hours you can finish it, but it, it it does talk about that. How and I think that's like like we've been talking about. That's the big piece that we're missing is that is that when people's passions aren't aligned, they're not going to be making doing good work. And that's one of the questions I had. You were talking about, okay, let's, let's, let's make work more inclusive to the employees where they feel like they're listened to and that their input is shaping the roles of the company. Uh, I mean, what if your employees aren't passionate about what they're doing? What if they're not engaged in the work they're doing? Then how, what's, where's the protection to make sure that they don't contribute bad ideas? Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I think, you know, it, it's, of all the ideas that, I, that I've tried to learn from Nassim Taleb, I think the one that is, I think, the most intuitive to people and that makes the most sense out of the, kind of off the bat is the idea that in general, increasing options increases value. And so the, the best answer I could give to your question is that what I would, what I would hope a society would strive to do to create enough dynamism and enough opportunity and enough options so you could just avoid that problem from ever existing. Now, obviously that's a limiting case. You have to work towards that, but you know, it's how do we have it so that people feel that they're a part of a team? The first step would be to actually make sure that they are a part of a team, that their voice matters. But the second part would be put them in an environment where they want to be, put them in an environment where not only does their voice matter, but where they want their voice to matter, where they give a damn about the outcome. And I think, I think part of that can be um, synergistic. I, I think people can be made to care about things when they feel they have control over it, that I think that that can build the, the uh, sense of, of ownership by actually, it's like you give a little bit and that instills a kind of personal pride in what they're doing. And that kind of grows into them caring more about the outcome. But ultimately, I think it, moving towards a direction of smaller, more local companies or really I think it's small groups of people where you don't feel like you're just, you know, a replaceable number in a sense, but where you feel like you're making a unique contribution um, goes a long way, but then having enough opportunity so that those little companies or whatever, you know, whatever group happens to be is a place where you want to be to begin with. But 
Yeah. The answer is just optionality. I mean, you have to pursue options. And I, I figure to most people, this is like, yeah, obviously that the dumbass, how do you make it happen? And I'm, 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 I'm throwing my hands up saying, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm saying as somebody who never would have read, uh, you know, fairly far left stuff. I I've been reading it more recent. I think, you know, I, I have to take it seriously. I, I have to give them, I have to say, correct. This is a, this is an idea that's worth considering. And yeah. I, I think there's a lot in common between the hyper libertarian people and the far left in, in, in the sense that, you know, institutions that are powerful and that are stagnant really do hinder progress in that, you have to find a way of empowering the individual. And I think they just have, they have different answers on how you empower the people. But that pursuit that I think both groups take seriously is a point of agreement that I think is, is a very important point of agreement. But that leads to, um, you know, me having to take these ideas seriously and not just, oh, you know, they, uh, they said the C word, I got to get out of here. It's like, no, I read it idiot learn from it like there's some smart people that have these ideas and you can learn from them and uh that's what i'm trying to do yeah that 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 makes a lot of sense it's a uh, it's always worthwhile to figure things out on your own and not just take what people tell you for for uh, as truth and and i would say to go beyond the bounds of normal conversation you know i remember adam carolla one time saying that if you're on a on a train the worst person to sit by would be an average person. Like either sit by the homeless guy or the super, super wealthy person, but don't sit by the goober with, you know, the normal looking suit on. Don't sit by him. Sit by the extremely wealthy person or by the homeless person. You'll have a better train ride. And I think there is some wisdom uh, for, for usual Adam's full of wisdom. But I think that that one nugget is, I think, a good one to, to remember. Yeah, just uh, always look at look for the extremes in society. Um, I think you mentioned earlier, you had some resolutions you wanted to talk about. Yeah. I wanted to talk about new year's resolutions. And I want to put this of course, in, in the framework of systems over goals. Um, that's been a, a, a recurring theme that we are plagiarizing from other people. And I want to continue that plagiarism effort. Um, and I, I was just curious for you. I know that you're a, a, a systems-driven person, and I was, was just curious what, if any, uh, resolutions you had on the docket for uh, 2021. Yeah, typically I don't go do New Year New Year's resolutions, uh, just because why wait till New Year's? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. thinking. Uh, but I did write down a few things this year, <laughs> just reflecting. Um, see, I, I made some made some uh i made a list of words that i want to ban from my vocabulary and there's reasons for each of them let me get the let me get the bleep button ready over on my <laughs> uh yeah get get that on standby here we go banned words so i want to eliminate the word kind of or kind of from my vocabulary because it doesn't mean anything like it, yeah. it adds no value to sentences, but it's for a lot of people, the most common word they use. Like, I, I kind of think this, or I kind of think that. No, it's like, I think this, or better don't even say, I think just start, just say it. Right. Right. Um, the next one on the list is uh, interesting. To me, interesting is just a filler word that doesn't really mean anything. It's like, 
it's almost like you're placating to someone or you're trying to, to, uh, I don't know, play into their frame. I don't know what you're trying to do, but it doesn't mean anything. Like, oh yeah, you saw that movie. Did you see this movie? Doing a little bit of this. <laughs> yeah. A little oh, bit yeah. Of reciprocity action, a little bit of giving them the idea that they're interesting when they're probably not. Yes. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that movie was interesting. It's like, mm, does that mean it was good? Was it bad? Did you like it? Like, it's just, it, it just seems like a non-word, like very non-descriptive, which leads us to the next word, which is things. And I think this was one that I think. Oh, yes, I think. Okay. <laughs> no, I think isn't on here yet, but it should be. <laughs> I'll, maybe for 2022, I'll add the word thing because that's a hard one to get rid of. But things. I think you're right. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> think like you can say like a lot of different things. Like there's a lot of different things that contribute to X. Like things is kind of just like another, like not well thought out generic word. It feels like to throw something, out there. Something you say when you don't know what to say. Yeah. When you don't know how to describe a group of things, like more accurately, you just say things because right. things is, describes everything. Uh, let's see what else I got on here. Uh, I made a rule for myself or a goal. This is more of a goal the to never check in luggage in uh 2021 so i do explain what that means like when you're flying on airplane yeah when you're flying on an airplane because it it's it's i'm starting to realize the minute the value in minimalizing things minimizing things and it's it's a giant pain in the ass you have to get to the airport earlier to check in a big bag of things that you're probably not going to use like you're probably only going to wear two of the five pairs of pants that you pack or t-shirts or whatever. And you have to stick around the airport longer at the end. And just, you have the anxiety like, Oh, what if this bag doesn't come out of the carousel? What if today's my day? It doesn't come out. Pull in your number, baby. <laughs> I'm losing this one. <laughs> and then you got to You got to position yourself. Cause someone could, how easy it would it be just for someone to take a full, you know, Samsonite bag and just run off with it before you notice, like they would, make off pretty well and the chance of getting caught is pretty low. Uh, so I, I want to, I want to eliminate checked in baggage for 2021. I want to, uh, only the carry on, only the carry on. What about the gate check? Cause the sometimes, check. sometimes they, they get you with the gate check where I want to have enough room in the overhead compartment and they'll make oh. you check your bag at the gate. Yeah. That's just, that's just criminal. They shouldn't it's do that. Awful but... They can do that. Yeah. I mean, at that point, there's really nothing you can do about it. Just pull out your your book and your laptop or whatever you're going to use on the plane and uh, your, your check massage, it in. massage gun. I'm a massage gun, yes. And your... <laughs> it's not loaded. <laughs> relax. <laughs> I like that. I, I like the uh, I like the no checked luggage. I think that's that's a good one. That's <laughs> this is probably a good year to do it because you know traveling probably yeah. will be light for at least a few more months. You know, so. You know, it's a good month to kind of slowly add into that uh, habit. I think that that's a good idea. My grandparents, when they would travel, would do the opposite, where rather than doing check bags, they would mail their luggage ahead of time and have them go to the town that they were going in. So they, they took your frustration and added on the other end of the spectrum to really knock it out of the park and to say, we're not going to bring a big bag on a plane. We're going to bring 10 big bags on a U-Haul and it'll meet us there. And we'll see you. Uh, later so reserve, reserve a railroad car and get all our yeah. stuff on it you see that csx car right there that's ours that seal better be attached when we get it back to the uh to the port yeah 
I like that. that I, I really like that. I like your idea of banning words. I'm gonna, did that come from the Matthew McConaughey interview that you saw where he was saying that his family had certain words that they couldn't say? Oh, you know, I didn't think about that, but probably. That probably... Wasn't that the thing you told me that he couldn't yeah, say yeah. or something like that? Yeah, I, I totally talked about that before. It probably uh, played into my subconscious somehow coming up a with this. A little bit of liking or something going on. And, 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 all, and also part of it is just writing, trying to improve writing. You, sure. you start re- reading things and you're like, okay, how many of these words actually mean anything or add anything? And how many are just like useless filler words that, that, that people just put in for no reason? I don't know. I, <laughs> That's yeah. eye-opening. Uh, you know, curve. there's another, another word you might put on your list. I'm trying to think if it was either Mark Plain or maybe it was uh, Kurt Vonnegut. I don't remember one of the authors that I read about one time, but they were saying that when they were writing a story, they would never write the word very. They yeah. Would the word damn. And then the editor would take it out because you're not going to write damn. And so it was to get that word out. Kind of the same thing. It's like, it was very important. It's like, probably saying it's important will be okay. I don't I think the very is not adding that much. So uh, he would say it's it's damn important. Exactly. And the editor would strike it out. And that would be. I kind of like damn though. I kind of like. I, I love, I love. It's hard. It's hard for anybody to find a, a, a swear word that I have not A, used myself. I'm a B, I'm a big fan of um so i agree with you i, I like I, I think game is underused actually i think it's yeah. underused. so i'd like to bring that one back a little bit. maybe that'll be my resolution to bring dan back oh yeah more into the totally do that yeah um but before we go to your resolutions there was one word that was on the fence for me and that was okay. like the word like like is a terrible word it's a uh it's a speech impediment is what it is <laughs> it's it really it is it's people that don't they go eh, it was like uh like when i as someone who struggles with I have a little bit of a stutter, a little bit of a stammer, a little bit. Um, and I, I, I do the like thing sometimes as well, but um, that is one that I've had to try to improve on myself is to not say like as much. So I would uh, salute you in the effort to add it onto your list. It is a terrible word. I mean, again, obviously if you're using it yeah. to mean, if you're using as it- As a filler. <laughs> yeah, as a filler, don't use it. If you're using it for like a simile, that would be different. But Yeah, it has to be. Like a simile has to have the word like or as in it. I think a simile is like a metaphor only it has a word like and yeah well said yeah 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 no I like is a terrible it's, it's a speech impediment get rid of that was be one to get rid of I mean I know it, we, we haven't really talked about talent stacks in a long time but it, you know talking and writing well is a talent that people that no one's born with I very few people are born with but I think anybody can improve on if they just put effort and time into it and um I, as someone who did not, did not do that, and as a result, still talks too fast and usually uh, incomprehensibly, <laughs> don't, you know, do as, I, do as I say, but don't, because I don't talk very well, and definitely don't do as I do, because I, I don't talk very well. I, I can say you've come, you've come a long ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember when I was young, I would talk so fast, people would listen to me talk just for like a spectacle. They'd be like, what are you even saying? Hey, that's good content. Maybe we need to bring it back. Oh, it was, it it was, uh, I would, I would joke. I do impressions of people. I always say I would do an impression of myself, but I can't talk that fast. I I can't. (laughs) It's impossible to talk that fast. Maybe that could be a new segment is uh, we, we, we get Jimmy on some. (laughs) What what did Jimmy say? (laughs) (laughs) We we finished, we finished the next episode with a lightning round, a monster fueled lightning round. I have monster today. 
So you've missed out, my friend. I had a oh, man. I've had some great flavors recently. I've been doing monster. As I was, I was thinking, you know, I'm eating healthier. I'm doing all that stuff. And I'm like, and yet here I am popping open the big daddy. Uh, some habits that are harder than others, I guess, but you, you got to feel the machine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very good. Very good. Now I, I like those. I think that those are all good resolutions. I think they're all doable. They're all achievable. And uh, I think they definitely will improve your life if you hold to them. So I, I salute you in, uh, in those resolutions. Perfect. What, what, what resolutions uh, did you come up with? I don't have any. All right, but that's your episode. I only have, it's one resolution, but it's, it's different parts. But I, I want to improve the skill of teaching myself things. Like that's what I really want to improve on. And basically I am, uh, my, my resolution is, is to attack uh, my, my ignorance on, on things. And, um, I'm, I'm starting with some science topics that I have always wanted to learn about, but always found an excuse to just not learn about them. So I'm just saying no more excuses, just learn about them. And, um, I'm going to slowly build on, I have kind of a list of topics. You, you can't see it behind that. I have a whiteboard with like some, I'm, I'm calling them big ideas, but there it's kind of ideas that I want to spend some time with and really learn and to, to make a part of how I perceive the world and how I interact with it. So that's my, my one resolution overarching is to kind of really set aside time this year for studying these things at a, at a fair amount of detail uh, to understand them and to incorporate them into how I interact with and, and perceive the world. Yeah, I like that. Jimmy's big ideas, maybe the, the next upcoming segment of the Roses Rhetoric podcast. Right, it sounds like, a, sounds like a winner to me. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Well, do you want to close out? Any other things you wanted to mention on this episode? Well, I think our listeners will be on the edge of their seat for the next episode when we hear back from, from the Hinge conversation, but oh, all the yeah. more reason for them to join us next time, I think. Leave them on a cliffhanger. Yeah, that'd be very good. Well, everybody, that was a lot of fun. Uh, episode number 15, I'll just say one more time. Please go out, buy a copy of False Flags, go out and buy a copy of Mariner and the Monk. Uh, two great books. Links will be in the description below. Um, as always, make sure to like, share, subscribe, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. Follow us on Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric. And then also follow Joe at Jose four underscores Cuervo. But uh, with that, we'll wrap up episode number 15. Another fun episode. I hope you all enjoyed it as well. As well as I'm Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joseph Stanford saying ciao.